Rudyard Griffiths here, the Executive Director of The Hub. Welcome to the Friday Roundtable edition of The Hub Dialogues. Each week on this program, we dig into the big issues and ideas shaping the public conversation with Sean Spear, our Editor-at-Large, and Stuart Thompson, our Editor-in-Chief. The goal of these weekly programs is to leave you with some new analysis and insights into the week that was. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granowski-Gluskin Charitable Foundation. Stuart, Sean, great to be in conversation with you today, Friday, the 25th of November. Hey, guys. Hey, great to connect, guys. Now, Stuart, you're laboring under the latest version of the bubonic plague that is circulating through households with young children, yours included. Tell us about your symptomology. What what is unique? <laughs> what is special about uh, the virus that has brought you low this Friday? Yeah, this I can't even feel special about this one because this is exactly what I remember from my first kid's first year of daycare. Um, I won't get into the details of how much phlegm I'm dealing with right now, but that's <laughs> that's what it is. I like the Sean Connery kind of dulcet, you know, tones that it's working on your vocal cords. So it's definitely uh, helping the rub, the roundtable uh, podcast. Um, well, guys, from uh, from the you know the less than serious to the serious, we have had this week uh, the hearings in Ottawa on the Emergencies Act kind of move into high gear. And what's fascinating to me is is again the kind of dropping of the curtain or the parting of the curtain into the inner sanctums of kind of cabinet and text messages between ministers it's just a kind of delicious little slice um little arrow slit uh, that you can look through to kind of see actually the machinery of government <laughs> it's pretty messy i'm not uh, to say the least uh, Stuart, what was your takeaway? What are some of the key things that you think listeners should understand from the week of testimony to, to again, understand what we're interested in the hub, which is how government works, why it doesn't work, and maybe where there's a need for some reform or kind of course correction um, uh, out of this commission, out of these hearings, and out of whether the Emergencies Act was even needed uh, in the first instance? Yeah, it was kind of a surprise to me to see that the ministerial group chat is about as irreverent as the hub group chat that we have for ourselves, um, which you can either find endearing or dismaying. I don't know quite which one it is. Um, but that, I mean, I, I've kind of felt um, a little bit of an anticlimax with this because I always felt like it would be interesting, but the political uh, effects of it would be pretty low. I, I just never felt like this was going to be a big hit for the government. Um, but the, the sausage making is just tremendously interesting. And um, you always kind of assume I, you know, starting as a journalist, you always kind of assume these things ran really well, that there were systems in place. And then you talk to these people and they say, well, have you seen the thick of it? Have you seen Veep? I mean, it's more like that than it is the West Wing. And um, I think that is really what we're seeing here. The jokes between um, Mendicino and Lametti about bringing tanks um, onto the streets. I mean, that kind of stuff. I, I understand that, you know, being irreverent helps in a highly stressful situation, but, you know, it is just a little bit dismaying seeing this kind of stuff. Sean, what's your take of the three of us? You've actually spent time in government, including working in a prime minister's office. So you little, you maybe have been closer to the reality than the, 
the fiction, the kind of exterior projections that governments create of sagacity and sober kind of second thought and methodical decision making. <laughs> this all looks kind of wild on the inside. Um, now, it was a crisis, but I've got some views. I want to hear yours first. Yeah, I'm not surprised that things are less orderly and more chaotic than Stuart and maybe some listeners would have would have liked to to think um you know that's broadly my experience as well we used to joke that uh whenever someone accused the harper government of being strategic and proactive more often than not it was a fortuitous coincidence that made things look like um like they were more orderly than they really were the one thing that does surprise me a bit um is you know, to put bluntly, there is a degree of cynicism reflected in a lot of the exchanges between members of the political arm of the government, a sense that they had two goals, one to deal with the immediate emergency uh, of the blockades at various major transportation hubs, as well as uh, the, uh, the protests in Ottawa. But there was also a tremendous interest in trying to kind of juice the politics of it as much as possible for uh, the Liberal government and the Liberal Party. Um, and I think that may be one of the major takeaways for, from, for Canadians from, uh, from these hearings, that at a moment of kind of crisis and emergency, uh, oftentimes political actors were thinking as much about how to kind of maximize the political upside as they were about how to deal with the, the crisis at hand. So uh, my take here is... Uh... Power speaks. And what's been interesting to me this week is to see how, I mean, again, maybe it's not a surprise, but that this was a political decision, the implementation of the act, not a legal or constitutional decision. And and I I just think you have to call it for what it is. I mean, it's fascinating to read the government, you know, being lobbied by, you know, bank CEOs who are worried that Canada is starting to look like a banana republic. Um the White House is up in arms about the uh, uh, the obstruction of the border crossings uh, between Ontario and the United States. Again, fine that bank CEOs might have a view on this, but that's kind of not the people you should be listening to or thinking about when you have to make a serious legal and constitutional, in a sense, decision as to whether uh, you know a a national security risk warrants the implementation of uh, the enactment of the Emergencies Act. And I, I guess what I just feel coming through all this, and it may, maybe it should be no surprise, and I'm, you know, I might as well be reading you, you know, my expense receipt from lunch uh, this week with Sean. But to me, it is striking how the, the government is, is just so inherently political, and they're worried about what bank CEOs think. You know, I don't know, Stuart, there's something... Is is I, maybe this is just how the Laurentian kind of uh, elite consensus works in a time of crisis? The they powwow together uh, and, they, and they make decisions, but it it just seems somehow, um, yeah, just overly political, overly lobbied, overly uh, concerned about reputation and. PR and spin, as opposed to the substance of something, which was pretty damn serious at the end of the day. Yeah, I, I, it's really remarkable. In one of those text exchanges, uh, Mark Carney is mentioned as someone who's upset about this. And it's like, you know, Mark Carney's mad. We better do something about this. And 
I like if you wanted to affirm some stereotypes about this government, some of these text exchanges will do that for you. Um, and I think that is, I, I think there are, you know, obviously a government has to manage um, how things come out. And, you know, you talk to anyone who's implemented a policy, if it's a policy you really care about, you have to manage how it will be perceived, how it will be attacked, you have to roll it out properly. And when you don't do that, it fails, and then you don't get to do the thing you wanted to do in government. Um, so there is an element of this that goes on, but it you're right, it's all consuming with this government. And I, I do think there's a political risk with that, which is that if you look like you're entirely about optics, then people start to see you as not having any substance. And that was the original criticism of Trudeau in the first place. So you can't afford to affirm that in people's minds. Can I draw an analogy for you guys that I've been thinking about uh, reading some of these texts and hearing some of these testimonies? Um, listeners will probably remember uh, in the last uh, midterm election cycle in the United States, there was criticism of the Democratic Party, which on one hand, was raising concern alarms about you know the rise of far right politicians and the need to protect democracy and on the other hand uh, supporting financially Trump like candidates in Republican primaries and that there was this cognitive dissonance um, uh, inherent in those two messages and actions and you kind of see some of that in the text messages that on one hand the Trudeau government is raising concerns about extremism and white supremacy and all the rest. And on the other hand, um, tripping over one another to get out uh, and, and um, you know, in effect, leverage uh, the protests as evidence of all of the things that, that it's raising concerns about. In fact, I think in one case, one ministerial staffer says, we don't want to go too hard so as to, you know, discourage these elements from exposing themselves. So um, it seems to me, if you are committed to political stability, social cohesion, Rudyard, something you and I were talking about incidentally just yesterday, you know, I think we have a collective interest that there are some issues that need to be effectively depoliticized. And, you know, you can't be lamenting the rise of extremist politics, and on the other hand, effectively trying to uh, maximize it for political ends. I, I, as I said earlier, I do think that those are the types of things that uh, coming out of this whole exercise um, may leave um, some damage uh, on the government. Yeah, I mean, Christopher Freeland's testimony, parts of it quite striking, you know, asked, you know, how do you know these people are terrorists? Well, I have a Rolodex. Um, like, what is, like, what is that? Is, does that mean you talk to CSIS? I, I don't know, or do you literally have a Rolodex that you are <laughs> you're privy to that I'm not? It just, it, I don't know, the government just comes off as somehow um, facile about this. And and if you walk it back and you think, well, why? It seems clear. And then maybe here is the justification of the government that much of this was in a sense psychological, that Ottawa was under siege. There was a probably a feeling in those cabinet meetings that they had lost control and, and that you know, there's nothing in a sense probably worse for a government to feel than control ebbing away and the vested power interests in the country, including, you know, uh, the commercial industrial banking complex and others, uh, you know, calling you on their, the, on the bat, bat phone, the hotline um, to express their displeasure um, with what this does for foreign direct investment in Canada. You know, it doesn't get more scalding than that probably for a finance minister, I joke, but 
the reality nonetheless is that I think this had to Stuart have been like a, almost like a psychological crisis. And the act in a sense was the, was the pill. It was the, the panacea that would make this kind of anxiety, uh, this political disaster go away and come hell or high water, they were going to find the, the, whatever, you know, they needed to, to justify this. The train left the station well before any serious constitutional or legal consideration was put into place. Yeah, I think that is the one thing that's totally clear from this testimony is that they're barely even making the case for that definition to be met. Um, and, you know, you could even make the case that they're not making the case. They made up their own definition um, for a national security risk. Um, so, you know, when this this was kind of reminiscent, just as you were talking, Roger, about you know, the last year's election when there were these anti-vax, you know, anti-restrictions protests just outside of, you know, campaign availabilities for Justin Trudeau. And the liberals saw that as a really good contrast for them, where if they were seen being normal and governing next to these protests, um, that was good. It would, it would put the conservatives in a bad light too. And I think actually, when you look at how this is playing out, we have Trudeau's testifying today. There's a big rally outside. There's protests. There's what I think most kind of suburban Canadians would see as unsavory uh, elements there. Um, and for liberal voters, especially, there's unsavory elements. And I think the PR is really what is happening here. This is, you know, with Justin Trudeau's testimony, it barely matters what he says. Um, what matters is he walks in and is well-dressed. And then the B-roll is of some protest outside. Um, so I, the unfortunate thing to me is that I think actually this will all work in their favor despite all of the grossing that we may do on this podcast. Can I just make one point though? Because I think there's just a tremendous amount of insight there. Uh, you know, it seems to me conservatives need to resist the temptation to um, scratch a partisan itch here just because the protesters were lined up against their political opponents. Um, I think there was a tendency in a lot of conservative circles to then kind of instinctively side with the protesters. Um, you know, the what's the old adage? You know, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, um, so to speak. You know, but it seems to me uh, a core kind of insight of conservatism ought to be in favor of public order, public stability, to kind of be allergic to the protest instinct. You know, I became a conservative in the mid-1990s in part because I was so, um, I responded so negatively to the protest culture in and around the Harris government. Um, and so, you know, I, I, I would elevate people like uh, conservative MP Michael Chong, who on one hand has been critical of the government's handling of these issues without kind of falling in the temptation to effectively side with the protesters or the protest instinct itself. I'm not, that's something that the current leader, Pierre Polyev, hasn't always been able to uh, kind of achieve. And some conservative MPs certainly haven't. Um, but I, I think this probably is a chance for a bit of introspection for them as well. Even just seeing the, the, convoy lawyer ought to cause those conservatives who at different times were inclined to kind of side with the protesters to think, who am I kind of getting into bed here? These people are, are nuts, you know? So Stuart, just to wrap this up, you know, where does this go from here? Um, you know, politically, I guess, if there is a, what would it be like a finding that, that the, the conditions did not exist for the, 
the implementation of the act as the government um, has advised the prime minister, we'll never know because Lametti is now saying there's client, client privilege uh, around the Justice Department's um, advice to, to the prime minister. So I don't know, does this all end up in a nothing burger uh, or is there in a sense a, I don't know, some bigger political cost that could be paid either because of what we're seeing in the testimony or more importantly, the, the ultimate finding uh, of the uh, of the hearings? Yeah, my I think the smart money for me is on, you know, this is a judge that most Canadians have never heard about and the report will come back and say, the Liberals should have really revealed this information about how they decided this, but they didn't. Um, there'll be about a week of critical coverage on that. And I think Justin Trudeau will probably say, you know, this judge can have his opinion, but I was the man in the arena on that day and I had to do something to fix this. Um, I think that'll probably be compelling to Canadians um, who are just kind of, you know, the kind of Canadians who are half watching these political uh, events. Okay, that makes sense. Uh, slightly cynical for you today, Stuart. It's usually me that has to play the role of cynic on the podcast. I'm, I'm glad your viral infection is um, bringing you over to an understanding of just how dim the human condition can be in the middle of a nice, uh, a nice, rich, throaty cold that I can hear in your voice. Um, okay, let's take a break. When we come back on the other side, we're going to talk China, uh, but we're going to talk China in Canada. This is kind of a remarkable moment where uh, allegations are that a number of candidates who ran in the last election had some kind of support. We're, we're not exactly sure how it fl flowed or what it consisted of, but support from China to run in the election, of conceivably to influence you know Canadian policy and decision making. Um, we're going to unpack that debate for you right after this break. You're one click away from getting access to all the Hub's best analysis and insights. Visit our website, www.thehub.ca now and sign up for our weekly email news digest. Every Saturday morning, we'll send to your inbox the cutting-edge thinking and analysis of our smartest contributors on the week that was. Dive in to the big issues and ideas moving the public conversation, courtesy of The Hub. Again, you can grab that exclusive email newsletter right now, free of charge, at www.thehub.ca. Now back to our program. Welcome back to the Hub Roundtable. Rudyard Griffiths here, your executive director. I'm joined by Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, Stuart Thompson, our editor-at-chief. Uh, guys, in the second half of the show, uh, let's talk about the other big debate that's gripping the country. Uh, news reports first, uh, let's give credit where credit is due, revealed by Global News that um, Beijing uh, had provided uh, support, seemingly through its consulates to candidates who were running in the last uh, federal election, potentially uh, initially reports, maybe a dozen uh, so individuals. Uh, some of this has been walked back. There's now less clarity about either the number of individuals or how exactly the support flowed. But Sean, to come to you first, the prime minister has taken a kind of curious stance on this, that uh, he's been exceedingly careful with his uh, wording about it and seems to be now uh, asserting that he had no advanced information about, and I'll be clear here, 
Beijing, China providing support to uh, these candidates. I don't know. I don't know what to make of this. Uh, is this, uh, you know, angels on the head of a pin or, you know, something more serious, maybe a government that's skirting and skating on something that may be quite embarrassing to them politically? Yeah, you're, you're right to emphasize the precision here. Um, you know, it's worth just going back for a quick second that the, as you said, Rudyard, the global report uh, indicated that in January, the prime minister and other cabinet ministers were briefed on this case of interference. We don't know precisely what the briefing said. We also know that at the G20, the prime minister raised these issues with President Xi because the, the prime minister's office put that out in a statement. And in fact, uh, we have reason to believe that the reason he was um, that he was browbeated by President Xi later on was precisely because that exchange leaked. But then in the press conference following the G20, the prime minister said he didn't he had never been briefed on these issues uh, or, as you say, briefed on the kind of precise question of the flow of money. Two quick points. One, uh, I think you're right that at, you know, at best this reflects uh, a, a, a kind of emphasis on wordplay to skate out of what the prime minister knows or didn't know. But then secondly, having worked for a prime minister, I can tell you guys, if you woke up in the morning on the date that the global news story came out, the very first thing you would do is say, holy smokes, we need to look into this, get the National Security Advisor, get the Director of CSIS, get others in a room. The Prime Minister and other senior members of the government need to understand whether this is true or not. And so we're led to believe from the Prime Minister's own words that he's not kind of curious enough uh, to get to the bottom of, uh, of the global reporting, even if the global reporting's um, claim that he was briefed in January uh, was imprecise. The whole point is it's something you think you'd, you'd want to know about. Okay, sir. So then let's just play this out. Why the, why the dance here? I mean, is it, is it again, just simply that governments have this uh, aversion, this kind of allergy against admitting possibly that there was an error that, you know, information was shared with the government. Uh, and I presume the government doesn't now want the perception that this information had not been immediately acted on, that one would think there would have been a courtesy call to the uh, the leader of the Conservative Party to share this information with them so that they were aware in their own processes. And I guess, is that why we're now into this kabuki theater? Because of the kind of embarrassment or the degree to which Canadians would feel like, hey, you have not taken this with the urgency that it demands you haven't done anything in the last nine months except proverbially sit on this file yeah i think that is so one of the um little alcoves we've gone down here i think is very useful for the conservatives be, to be pursuing in question period and at committees um but it kind of loses um sight of the entire issue here which is that the conservatives are saying well if you didn't know about the funding specifically were you briefed on this election interference network in the abstract or as a mm -hmm. whole um, with the idea being that so if that does turn out to be true because it does kind of make sense given the you know the the precision of the prime minister's statement that he was asked he was briefed about that and then he had no follow-up questions <laughs> about was this interference network actually doing anything at the time the other 
option is that he just wasn't briefed, which it seems that's what the liberal government wants us to believe from their statements. But, you know, you have to ask whose head rolls because they forgot to tell the prime minister about an interference network in our elections. Um, it just seems like there's no good option here for the government. And the lack of clarification or the lack of an explanation here, I think, can only do them damage. Sean, there, there, some have said there's kind of, um, you know, memories of SNC here where, again, the Prime Minister very precise in his language about, you know, quote, not directing the then the Attorney General uh, Jody Wilson-Raybould. Um, I mean, what do we make of that? This this kind of phraseology that's emerged this week about, in a sense, almost implying that he was not briefed on Beijing providing, these are not his words, but the implication is somehow direct support, like as if Beijing would, I don't know, stick cash in bags and fly them to its consular office to then give away to, you know, local uh, supporters of the PRC in Canada to then give to candidates. I mean, why couldn't it just be as simple as the consulate lets its its uh, allies and friends know that certain candidates are preferred by the consulate over other candidates and you should make the maximum you know political contribution to those candidates to ensure that they have a chance to be elected i mean that would seem to be a kind of sensible way to run a conspiracy if you were going to be chosen to do that nonetheless, exceedingly serious, um, a direct attempt to manipulate our democratic process. So I just, I don't know, I'm just bewildered again by this, the preciseness of this and the, the alighting that's going on. It, I, I don't know, do you get into worse trouble because of that than the original sin of a mission or commission that kicked this whole thing off? Do you guys remember the New York mafia boss in the 1980s uh, and 90s, uh, John Gotti? He earned the reputation, the Teflon Don, because there was a series of attempts to prosecute them and the human had all failed. And then, of course, ultimately, uh, he was prosecuted in part because of a, a, a mole within his uh, crime organization that... that uh, that ultimately brought him down. And, you know, the prime minister has a degree of Teflon, doesn't he? You know, you think of the series of, of mini scandals over the course of his prime ministership. You missed SNC, you mentioned SNC Lavalin. There was ethics issues around, um, uh, around uh, a, a trip, uh, one holiday. There was, of course, the blackface scandal in the 2019 election campaign and so on. And in each case, the government has resorted to this kind of defense, right? Um, you know, not full-blown um, disinformation, but... Let's also not forget the Coconut Beer Festival. <laughs> yeah, and, and but it's another example where they adopted essentially the same kind of defense. And, you know, it seems to me that that it, it has worked kind of for two reasons, um, or at least they've counted on two factors for this approach of dissembling to work. The first is, you know, um, either a lack of resources in the press gallery or a lack of curiousness in the press gallery or whatever. And the second is a kind of ineffectual opposition. And I, I'm not sure that's going to quite work this time. It seems to me that Sam Cooper and some of the other reporters at Global News are kind of dogged on the China file. They've broken a number of stories over the years. And my sense is they're going to keep at this one. 
And the second is Pierre Polyev is not Aaron O'Toole or, or Andrew Shearer. Um, and so I don't know, this may be a case where um, like John Gotti, that the Teflon starts to um, be less useful than it's been in the past. Final question to you, Stuart. You know, you put this all together. You've got, you know, Lametti refusing to release the Justice Department lawyers' advice to the Prime Minister on the implementation of the Emergencies Act. Um, you have this again, kind of dance that's going around. Uh, who knew what when regarding uh, these candidates in the election? You have, I think, some good press reporting on just how broken freedom of information access is now. Uh, at the federal level in Canada. Does this matter? Like when you put this all together, you get a sense of, yeah, a a government that is running from, I, I think one of the probably core positive public perceptions of this prime minister, which was a sense of the opening up of government, the increasing of transparency, the greater involvement of citizens in their own institutions. You just have to wonder this late, this long into this government, boy, does that seem like kind of yesterday's news. This seems like a much more defensive elbows up, uh, opaque government that is pursuing its agenda regardless of those sunny days and sunny ways that inspired so many Canadians when they were first elected. Yeah, I, I think that is the, the way these things tend to work is that um, it's not one big scandal usually that brings down a government. It's sort of this pervasive feeling, um, you know, these things add up and a lot of things of a similar tenor have been happening. And, you know, I I, have, I don't watch Question Period every day. It's been a while since I sat down and watched the entire one. And I did that this week for a story I was writing for The Hub on this actual uh, topic. And it is remarkable how much they don't even come close to an answer or even addressing the question in question period now. It's and it's know, just like, and, and again, that's not the fault just of the government. It's just the complete breakdown of parliament as any kind of serious venue for an honorable, honest, you know, exchange of policy and ideas. Yeah. And I've watched some excellent exchanges uh, in legislatures and House of Commons. It's a really, it's an exciting thing when it happens well. Um, but you know, watching a minister get up and read the same statement over and over again to different questions about the same topic is pretty depressing. And that kind of stuff, you know, it, it is adding up over time. And I, there's been a lot of talk in the media about Pierre Polyev's uh, media strategy, you know, not really talking to the press gallery as much as previous uh, opposition leaders or prime ministers. And, you know, I'm not the first person to say this, but is this really better, these like canned talking points, the kind of rote memorization that happens? Um, I, I think the the back and forth between the media and the politicians has deteriorated really badly, even in the time, I've only been a journalist for about 10 years and I've watched it degrade in my time. Um, but I think we are at an inflection point now and um, you know Canadians aren't watching QP, but they do get a sense of this stuff over time. Okay, Sean, you and I are in Toronto next week for uh, the Monk debate on mainstream media, uh, sold out, Roy Thompson Hall, 3,000 people. Uh, you're going to be there for the Hub, uh, interviewing some of our debaters, Malcolm Gladwell, Douglas Murray, um, amongst others. I'm looking forward to it. We got some Hub readers who are attending. Thank you for guys for coming. We're going to stand you to a drink and... Uh, 
Sean and I look forward to your thoughts on the debate. Sean, uh, who's going to win this one? The resolution, be it resolved, don't trust mainstream media. I, I'm genuinely torn on the question. Um, I could come down on either side. Uh, I, I just, uh, I'm so glad to be there. You know, I, I've seen Douglas Murray on podcasts and, and on television. He's just such a skillful communicator and debater. You have to think that whatever side he's on, um, you know, probably is the one worth making a, a, a bet on. Yeah. Well, don't, don't underestimate. We had Malcolm Gladwell about five years ago at the Muck debates and he's, he's a flinty guy on stage. It's a different persona. Uh, edgy. Uh, he wants to win. Uh, there's something kind of, there's a different Malcolm Gladwell that shows up on the Monk debate stage. And, uh, if you're interested in live streaming the debate, you can, uh, uh, go to the Monk Debates website as of Monday. We'll have some information about how to watch uh, the Monk Debate on mainstream media November 30th uh, live. Sean, you want the final word? Yeah, if I can offer an anecdote to uh, Stuart's growing uh, pessimism that seems to be contagious from Rudyard, I'd encourage him and uh, listeners to check out the latest episode of From Dialogues, our biweekly series with David Frum, which is just up on the website uh, this morning. Uh, November 25th, uh, we mark American Thanksgiving by talking about gratitude and David uh, case against the narrative of decadence and stagnation uh, in, in the West. I think it's a, a worth checking out a, a kind of positive message to end the week. Awesome. Let's do it. Okay, Stuart, get better, buddy. Uh, I don't know what drugs to recommend, but take them all, take a lot, try to lie down and chill out for the rest of the weekend. Yeah, don't worry. I'm on all of them. And thanks for listeners for bearing with me on this one. <laughs> I know it was rough. Okay. Everybody be well, be safe. We'll talk again next Friday. Thank you for listening to the Friday Roundtable edition of the Hub Dialogues. I'm Roger Griffiths, the executive director of the Hub. I've been in conversation with Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, and Stuart Thompson, the Hub's editor-in-chief. This program is produced and edited by Amal Atar Guzman. You can access a video version of this recording anytime on YouTube. Simply search for The Hub or The Hub Canada. You can also get video and audio versions on our website at www.thehub.ca. And finally, you can subscribe to The Hub's podcast feed on virtually any audio platform. We've got all kinds of terrific conversations featuring some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers discussing the big issues and ideas transforming our world. That's The Hub Dialogues, and it's waiting for you right now on your favorite podcast platform. Thank you for listening to this edition of The Hub Roundtable. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky Gluskin Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening. Thank you.